I'm pleased to present tonight's moderator, Bob Sipchin. For 18 months, Bob Sipchin has been the editor-in-chief of the Sierra Club's Sierra Magazine, a 700,000 circulation national bi-monthly, which, according to a recent media study, is the number two publication in America in terms of the influence of its readers, putting it behind the Atlantic Monthly and ahead of The Economist. Previously, he spent 23 years at the Los Angeles Times, where he edited the opinion section, led the team that created the late outdoors section, wrote a column about education, shared in the Times Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of the 1992 Los Angeles riots, and with Alex Raskin, won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing with a series about people living with mental illness and addiction on LA streets. Living now in San Francisco, he and his wife Pam have ample opportunity to gaze upon the landscape Carlton Watkins photographed. Please welcome Bob Sipchin. Thanks, Gregory. Um, I'm not sure about your favorite columnist, Gregory. I thought you were Zocalo's favorite columnist at the LA Times. Um, when I agreed to moderate this panel, Zocalo told me it would be about Carlton Watkins' landscape photography. I thought, pretty pictures, we're going to have a pleasant conversation about the beauty of nature. Uh, a few days later, Gregory called to say the Getty had added the word immigration to the title. And no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I begged, Gregory wouldn't let me off the hook. So I started thinking. Landscape and immigration, landscape and immigration. Um, I thought sky and birds, ocean and fish. The two seemed so uh, inexorably linked that it was almost redundant. But with the help of uh, the Gettys, Peter Tchaikovsky, the title of the panel eventually evolved to uh, its current title, Immigration and the Changing Picture of California. But I think the concept's the same. 13 to 16,000 years ago, Asians crossed the Bering Land Bridge, and eventually these people who we now call indigenous or Native American made their way to what we now call California, and they began changing it. That's just the way it is. People change the land, and the land changes them. This is as simple and profound a statement as I can imagine. And now that I've had some time to think about it, I'm really excited that that's what we're here to discuss this evening. So I thank Peter and the Getty, and I forgive you, Gregory. Tonight's discussion began in the late 19th century when an immigrant from New York named Carlton Watkins began lugging his 75-pound camera across the American West. He produced hundreds of photographs, and this evening, those images will continue to develop in the dark room of our own frontal lobes as they did the glass plates that Watkins used. Our panelists, I assure you, have clear impressions of what is or significantly is not represented in the photos of Watkins and others who followed his lead in capturing images of California landscape. I think you're going to be surprised, intrigued, and at least in one case perhaps repulsed by what these panelists are going to point out in photographs of California. Let me introduce this crew. Matt Garcia is Associate Professor of American Civilization, Ethnic Studies, and History at Brown University. His book, A World of Its Own, Race, Labor, and Citrus in the Making of Greater Los Angeles, 1900 to 1970, was named co-winner for the best oral history by the Oral History Association. His current book, 
Nature's Candy, Grapes and the Making of, farm, of the farm, maker, farm Workers Movement, to be published by the University of California Press in 2010, explores the consequences of our modern food system through a focus on grapes and the communities that produce them. Nyan Shaw is an associate professor of history at UC San Diego with an emphasis on 19th and 20th, 20th century cultural and political history, focusing on Asian American history, the history of medicine and public health, and the history of gender and sexuality. His 2001 University of California book, Contagious Divides, Epidemics and Race in San Francisco's Chinatown, charted the transformation of how Chinese immigrants were, were portrayed from medical menace in the 19th century to model citizen in the mid-20th century. Contagious Divides was awarded the History Book Award 2001 from the Association of Asian American Studies. He's at work on a book now about South Asian immigrants, interracial intimacy, and law in Canada and the United States, 1900 to 1950. Ken Gonzalez Day is a visual artist and scholar who lives and works in Los Angeles. He received his MFA from UC Irvine and his MA in art history from Hunter College. He has numerous fellowships in such, has done numerous fellowships in such places as the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Rockefeller Foundation Study and Conference Center in Bellagio, Italy, and the American Art Museum and National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian Institution. He has also had solo exhibitions of his work in dozens of galleries nationwide and in Latin America. His book, Lynching in the West, 1850-1935, was published by Duke University Press in 2006. Gonzalez Day is a professor at Scripps College and a fellow at the Getty Research Institute. Um, these gentlemen have inc incredibly impressive resumes, and uh, if, any of, if I left anything out that's important to any of you, please feel free to uh, add it. Um, the role I hope to play to tonight is uh, sort of, of a collegial contrarian, because from what I know of our esteemed panelists' strong views, someone is going to have to defend the innocence of our state's landscape and of our human species' at least sometime innocent relationship to California's landscape. Um, for the panel, I'd like to ask uh, a first question. It's, it's, a, it's a very basic question, uh, maybe too obvious, but I know that you've all thought about it. Um, is it possible for art ever to be taken from the context of politics and sociology? Um, is art ever just art? And particularly in the photographs of the sort that we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, I'm asking all of you that. Matt? Sure. Um, well, I, I come at it from the perspective that we have actually an obligation to uh, interpret uh, phot photography and, and photos um, from not only a historical point of view, but also from the point of view of the contemporary, of where you're at right now. And so I think that, in fact, the way to be responsible about viewing these photographs is to literally decontextualize them and recontextualize them. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a wonderful historian who I uh, can recommend. Uh, her book is about uh, Western photography, Marnie Sandweiss, and uh, her book is the print, uh, print the Legend, Photography in the American West. And she, she writes, photographs can describe the past. They have the limited capacity, however, to explain it, no matter how much we might wish they could. And I think that explanation part of it is left up to the viewer. And one of the things that um, ethnic studies and American studies, which all of us are sort of contributors to, 
um, argues is that meaning is made not just by the intentions of the producer, but they're also pr um, produced meaning, that is, by the interpretations of the viewers. And so the audience is always important. And the beautiful thing about photography is, is this issue about how it can describe a past, but it can't explain it. That explanation is left up to ourselves, uh, left up to historians in particular to write about it, but it's also left up to you to reflect on how uh, those photographs have, have essentially documented a past, but you, it's hard to, to look at those photographs without uh, understanding what came after. And so with that perspective, um, I look at these photographs and wonder who made those landscapes. Landscapes are not neutral. Landscapes are produced. Um, who was instrumental, not only in framing them, but when we actually look at some of the agricultural and the um, structural uh, photos in Watkins' uh, collection, who made those landscapes? Uh, who made them uh, the productive uh, entities in California that they are? And I, I'll, I'll stop there. Ken? Um, I guess I, I would agree with all of that and just add that one of the things that's um, remarkable about, about them, and I think we can appreciate that they're beautiful, but I think that we have to also understand that aesthetics, what we think of as beautiful, changes over time. You know, when Van Gogh did his paintings, he was considered to be a madman on some level. Today, we accept them uh, as being uh, masterful works of art. For Watkins, who uh, was clearly the hardest working photographer in California at that time, I don't know if you've seen the exhibition yet, but there's a sample of the camera, which is an enormous, it's the size of a Volkswagen, right? So this guy, <laughs> even, even if they were ugly photographs, he still gets the prize, okay? It was an amazing uh, thing. To, the, the emulsion was liquid, and you put it on a piece of glass, wet, in a tent, you waited till it almost dried, but not too dry, and then you put it inside the back of that, that contraption, expose it without a shutter, there's no shutter on that camera, and then develop it at, ex within five to 10 minutes um, in the chemicals that you've brought with you up the mountain trail. So that part of it, if we're gonna think about the poetics of art or the, the, the labor of art, is remarkable. And the thing I would add to the, the notion of, uh, of our responsibility on the one hand is, yes, to put the photograph within context, but as a practicing artist, I also think the thing that, that I can add by adding more information is giving people information that they don't have. Most of you probably have not made a print like this or worked with a camera like that. And by giving you that information, even as brief as it is, will give you a better appreciation of the work when you see it. So the photograph can't do all that work by itself because you're not experts in every kind of photography. I'm not in every kind of medium. And we need help to look at stuff, and that's why we have museums, that's why we go to museums. We, we believe in that, the culture machine, that we will, we will be better people at the end of the day. We will have learned one thing, or we will have learned to disagree with one thing, but that there is a responsibility for all of us as citizens, right? And, and so Watkins is a wonderful opportunity to think about something that we, that we might take for granted. Um, when we take the, uh, those pictures in Yosemite, most of us have probably taken the same shots. Is that because it's the best shot, or is that because the culture has taught us that that is the shot we should take, and, and we expect to take that shot? So there's a lot of things about our own sense of awareness and, and consciousness when we're walking through the environment that we can learn about and enhance by looking at photographs. Nyan, did you have anything to add? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think we, we all come to the photographs differently. Um, 
I don't know how many of you had a chance to see the exhibit, but when I was seeing the exhibit, I was both drawn in by the immensity of the images and trying to figure out where, where they were taken, when they were taken, who took them, um, all this stuff about the production of the art, um, trying to figure out what constituted art at that time when he took the photographs and what was just paying the rent. Um, and it is really important to understand why it is, how it is that this man from Oneonta, as a young man, 1850, comes clear across to California um, and apparently goes back and forth to New York via South America several times before he lands up in California and starts learning about photography and working in various different um, mediums and gets you know, to someplace like Yosemite, which takes not a highway trip in a car, but a 24-hour labor to get there, and what images he takes there. And I was so struck by one of the things about the Yosemite images is that he's going there because he got a job to show these to take these images of the Mariposa mine for someone who owns the mine because he had a dispute that was going on about whose property was what. And in the, in the interim, he not only takes pictures of the mine and the location of the mine, but he takes pictures of what we think of as iconically Yosemite. Um, and I don't know about photographers in your life, but my father is always wanting to take the crazy shot. This is a 75-year-old man that will do anything for the picture. And I thought, you know, we always joke about it, my mother and I, about what he'll do and where he's gone. Um, but I also thought about something about the practice that Watkins had, which was always going to the press-up. Um, and that was something that I don't know if we develop an a understanding of that just simply by someone saying, hey, go to the edge over there or go to that point. But I think that there are different ways the culture works so that there are ways in which the person who is now in the position to want to take the beautiful picture and people reproduce those images um, or even the picture that's very personal take, take um, inspiration from people like Watkins who innovated in extraordinary ways and to appreciate his innovation and why it's so compelling to us as humans out of the time of Watkins with different technology and different possibility is I think a very rich part of why we think the human humanities and the arts have something to tell us about what, how we communicate with each other, how we indicate to each other how to get to the place where not only I wanna see the sublime, I wanna share that seeing and I want to communicate that to someone else. So I think in all those different ways, the photography and the practice um, is constantly, as Matt said, contextualized, decontextualized, recontextualized by the richness of all that we bring when we see these photographs. Nyan, um, did you have some photographs? I was gonna ask you if you wanted to talk a little bit about Watkins' uh, San Francisco Chinatown photographs. Sure. And uh, maybe put that into context for us. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd certainly like to. I, I don't know, if, for those of you who've seen the exhibit, when you go and look at those um, um, stereographs um, and you, you'll you see a whole series of these images of, of various different things, not just the big uh, images, but also the images of uh, Chinatown in San Francisco where he had a studio. 
So let me tell you a little bit about, um, this is a story of, the uh, story of Watkins is actually a story of, of his own migrations overlapping with all kinds of other people. Um, in 1860 in California, there were maybe 380,000 people here. By 1920, there are three million. Um, in 1870, fully 30% of the working population, the working male population of California is Chinese. Watkins is among many people trying to make sense of all the different people that are coming through, the Chileans, the Basque, the Irish, the, um, the Mexicans, the Chinese, um, and what places like San Francisco and Sacramento and uh, even mining towns are this incredibly rich cosmopolitan space. And the Chinese are, uh, in particular, in San Francisco, uh, mostly Chinese, Chinese were in rural areas up and in the Gold Rush territory well through the 1860s. But so in the 1860s and 70s, they increasingly began to concentrate in cities like San Francisco. And these images are utterly fascinating, not only to people in San Francisco, but around the world. And they circulate um, in many different ways because they are reproducible like this. And this is Bartlett's Alley. Um, in San Francisco, it shows um, the outdoor features of Chinatown, um, and it shows some figures there. But these are the shots that the interior shots, which are very unlike most of Watkins' photography, which are trying to show the specificity and the particularity of a different culture in place in San Francisco. And that contrast of difference in the same place is what both excites artists and people who are also going to Chinatown to, um, to slum at a different kind of establishment, this kind of Chinese restaurant, uh, which opens in the 1870s and 1880s, and which working men are increasingly going to uh, for entertainment, for something different. Um, this is a very rare shot of different from most of Watkins' oeuvre, he didn't do portraits. Um, in fact, people who are often portrayed, um, he's not known for his portraits, but this is a portrait of a Chinese woman. And what's fascinating to me is I always thought this was a, a Tabor image, uh, but Tabor was a person who bought the rights to the image and all the negatives when Watkins went into his one of his periodic financial crises, and this was in the 1870s. Um, but this was an image of a Chinese merchant woman um, both for her own family and for her own society, but also one that circulated to sort of speak to a different way of thinking about femininity or womanhood or a different culture. And this shot is probably one of the more, um, one, one that I often teach in my lectures, which is a shot of a very important bridge outside of Sacramento in Placer County um, that's part of the railroad, of the Transcontinental Railroad, and the Chinese workers that worked on it. Fully 30% of the workers that made, and at, at some point, 50% of the western end of the Chinese, of the railroad was Chinese labor. And it was not unusual that much of California's infrastructure, the levees that we now hear are uh, breaking and we need to restore, were first done by the Chinese in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, the canals, 
uh, roads. So, so much of the infrastructure that we take for granted and we have neglected um, is also produced. Um, and he's depicting that in these kind of shots, the kind of labor of, of what kind of life is happening in California. And in particular, um, what kinds of ways in which commerce, capital, and people are inextricably linked in the making of California. And uh, there was a lot of hardship and suffering in, in the Chinese community in those days, of course. But the landscape changed in a positive way, too, I think you, you say in that, in your book where you talk about um, the Chinese being portrayed as, um, as uh, unhygienic, say. Right. There, there was an effort then to, from within the Chinese community and then also from outside to improve conditions, and it changed quickly. Is that right? It, it changed in fits and starts, I would have to say. Um, you know, I, my book is, uh, looks from 1850 to 1950, and I'm really intrigued by the idea that um, certain groups of people in certain, in certain places are thought to be, in the mid-19th century, the source of disease. And how to explain that when we don't know very much about disease and epidemic strike in various different ways. Um, and so there was a way in which people began to realize that there was uh, particular behaviors or activities, concerns about running water, concerns about um, waterborne diseases, um, and that the Chinese were sort of seen as a source of smallpox or leprosy or syphilis. Um, like other groups like the Irish were thought to be that in New York at the same time. Um, the change that occurs is very important about our society. And this, I think, has something to do with the very idea of modernity. Rather than sort of focus on people's particularities, people began to develop an idea of universal standards, an idea that if you made something very similar, i.e., you know, create the same sewer system and made sure everyone connected to it, um, had the same kind of standard of how you kept your house, that that could actually be the way in which we could have a better, healthier society. And so labor activists, women missionaries, Chinese community leaders are all trying to address what would make things better and using this idea of a universal standard to do so and using the contrast of the Chinese um, and the conditions in which they were often forced to live in slums that were owned by um, mostly uh, white landowners, uh, landlords, to try to make a case for how to improve our society. And so it's, it's that process that I think you know, works in fits and starts, but yeah, it's quite dramatic in, in ways. Good. Um, Matt, um, Don Mitchell in his book, Lie of the Land, makes the distinction between landscape as representation and landscape as material fact. And he describes how in the early 20th century, California growers who, who needed labor to grow their crops would advertise California. They'd advertise in eastern cities that California, you, you could come and you could work the land and it was healthy and it would make you more robust and it would be almost a tonic for city living. Um, I know that um, those, ad were, those ads were meant to appeal to mainly white laborers, but it very quickly became clear that they alone weren't going to be able to work the fields. Um, so I'm wondering with this idea of representation, landscape, and material fact landscape, um, 
Was the work healthful and life-affirming, as the ad suggests, for most of the laborers? Um, you know, the thing about uh, rural landscapes and agricultural landscapes is that they look natural, like they're supposed to be like that, and that uh, California in particular is associated with this idea of fecundity, of um, just uh, a, a lot of, of natural growing fruits and vegetables um, that require very little uh, labor. Um, and a lot of that comes out of the photography that was produced in the 19th century. The interesting thing to think about, though, is that those initial photographs um, that Watkins was a part of producing uh, was actually uh, for geographical surveys. Um, the intent was to essentially take stock of the scientific um, existence of certain uh, types of plants and uh, the morphology of uh, the terrain in California and the ability to grow these things. What's interesting, though, is that that quickly morphed into um, the kind of promotional materials that Bob's referring to. And Watkins was uh, uh, very keen, as, as Nyan uh, mentioned, to um, transform uh, what was a scientific venture into a commercial venture. And so what you see is that uh, there's this, this attempt really to grow the economy in California by appealing to Easterners to invest in California, to come here. Uh, you can make a lot of money by engaging in agriculture, that the land will produce in ways, um, in, in abundance, in ways that uh, don't happen uh, in other places in North America. There was a very common notion in uh, the citrus belt that you could survive and even thrive as a 10-acre man. That was a very common term. In other words, where other places it would take 160 acres to produce a livable wage for a family, on 10 acres only you could grow a citrus farm and um, essentially uh, sit in your, your chair and drink lemonade and then when the, the uh, citrus is ripe you could just easily go out and pick it yourself. Um, what these photographs did and what the people that used these photographs uh, accomplished was what um, a literary scholar, Raymond Williams, calls the erasure of labor. The reality is, is that just like in the urban environments where there's this dependence on um, immigrants who are, uh, let's just call them non-white from uh, non-European backgrounds, such as the Chinese, uh, they were very essential to the development of rural California. So in many ways, when I look at these photographs, um, I look for what's missing. I look for, I, I try to get beyond uh, what Raymond Williams is talking about, the erasure of labor. A actually ask the question, who did the labor? And when we ask these questions, um, we see these photographs as not so much just um, representations of reality, but rather that they have a metonymic quality. Uh, they represent something that uh, is not fully articulated in its form, but refer to the kind of labor that produced them. And so it's incumbent upon historians to talk about that. Nyan has talked about the importance of Chinese laborers. In rural California, it wasn't only Mexican, it wasn't only Chinese, it wasn't only Japanese that were, and, and uh, Sikh workers that uh, picked that fruit. But it was also in the grape industry, which I'm into now, um, Armenian and uh, Slavic growers who, 
at that point in time, we're not regarded as not we're, we're regarded as not quite white, um, as welcome to invest and develop uh, these lands. They were drawn by these photos, um, and it took some time for them to actually be welcome into California, and it took a lot of labor. In fact, for the Armenians in particular, uh, as you g drive through the Central Valley and you drive um, through San Joaquin Valley, you'll see the uh, names of buildings and the names of highways ending in IAN, right? And it was really um, uh, kind of absent from my mind when I started this project about grapes. What did that represent? Uh, Duke Magian, for example, right? Uh, Duke Magian, uh, the governor, the former governor of California. Duke Magian is Armenian. And what, we, what is revealed in those names and what's revealed in the, the, the citrus, uh, not citrus, the, the, the viticulture that's represented in these photos is the actual Armenian presence. Those Armenians were not welcome as co-equals, as equals to other European immigrants um, in rural California until after the 1940s. In fact, until 1944, Armenians were restricted from buying property um, alongside uh, Anglo communities. Um, there was hate crimes committed against them. Um, it was a place that they resided in and succeeded in in spite of the hostility that was directed at them. So. I think when we look at these photos and we look at those early uh, um, um, ads, we have to see beyond uh, what seems to be reality, and we have to see we have to um, understand the metonymic quality of those photos. Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. The, and there's this tension between the exploitation and the suffering of laborers who came to uh, farm here, and and what I think must have been a genuine attraction to that image of the healthy, robust life. In, in the next issue of Sierra Magazine, we feature a, um, a little profile of Savona, Savona Lahorn, an African-American attorney who's helping black farmers to hold possession of their farms. And I mean, the number of black farms in, in America has shrank, has shrank uh, incredibly in the last 20 years or so. Um, but one of the things that inspired Horn was she came across um, an account of a, of a freed slave, and she says, "When I, who returned to the plantation because she just couldn't, um, she couldn't get over that need for being in the land and the woods and the and and feeling the soil." And she says, "When I think of somebody who could escape that kind of bondage, returning because of her spiritual, emotional, and physical connection to the land and trees and birds, it speaks volumes about the human soul and how integral the environment and agriculture are to the psyche." Um, so I mean, I just I'm really intrigued with that. What must have been an incredible tension at the same time. And let me just say one little thing about that: the Armenians were uh, drawn here by uh, the nature, by the representations of the Sierra Nevadas mm -hmm. in particular. They associated the Sierra Nevadas and the San Joaquin Valley with their home in Armenia. They made references to mountains um, uh, that they they knew in Arme Armenia. Uh, to the mountains that they experienced here. Uh, the kind of irrigation that they practiced, they brought to this land because they knew that it was adaptable from their experiences in Armenia. So it was really the land that beckoned them, and it was that that drew them here in spite of the um, hostility they experienced. Okay, Ken, um, 
if you don't mind, I'd like to hold off on dis uh, discussing your extraordinary photographs for a moment. Um, but I do know that this issue of erasure that Matthew's been talking about is, is really important to you, too. And maybe I could get you to just elaborate on that a little bit. Um, when you look at landscape photograph photographs by someone like Carlton Watkins, what is missing from it in, in your view? And we're saving the images for later? We'll save the images okay. for later, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, um, you know, of, of course that's, that's a, a long story, but in uh, the shortest version, um, and what I was thinking of when I was invited to be on this panel in terms of immigration, was the subject of my book, which was on the history of lynching in California. And basically, the question there was that everybody was an immigrant, or most everybody. The majority of the population wasn't, were new immigrants, and so I was looking at the statistics and gathering statistics on, on which communities would be subject to racialized violence. And the largest group uh, was Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, which probably won't surprise most of us. And this is between basically 1850 and 1870. Uh, after 1870, it, it turns to Chinese, primarily, and um, I didn't find any. Armenian cases, but I'll look back at the names and see. So what I was interested in was that there was this community of which I'm a, a member of, was, and it's not represented in the larger notion of, of uh, when we think of frontier justice or the Wild West or any of those images. So the, the way I use erasure in my own work is to draw attention and to argue, which I think is quite true, um, that it's not that we simply have overlooked these histories, because in fact, this history of lynching that I'm referring to was well publicized in its day. These were, um, in the 19th century, um, lynching a person made the news. It was a very big deal. It's not something they did lightly. They did it quite intentionally. So there was a great deal of historical material on it. But when you turn to 20th century historic history books, it suddenly vanishes. And so for, for me, I was really looking at the way that um, that a group of historians basically diminished the impact of race in California, and in doing that, uh, erased the, the, the real struggles and life and death situations of, of a number of communities that, that, um, that extend beyond the Latino community. So do you, can you look at um, some of Watkins' photographs or the later uh, landscape photographers and look at certain scenes? Uh, I know you've traveled Highway 49 along the uh, Sierra Nevada a lot, or in the Central Valley. Do you see are you focusing when you see those photographs of what's missing? Of are you imagining scenes of the sort of thing you're talking about? Um, when I'm looking at the photographs, yeah. Do you do you, do you fill in the blanks? Do you, do you project? Um, I don't. I I I think I fill in the blank. The, the blank is already filled for me. I mean, I already I'm aware of the social history every everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. um, um, so that's that informs my understanding of. Of, of the state. I can still see the photographs as being beautiful. I would, just to go back to some of the things people said earlier, it was not really considered art when he was doing it in the sense that um, uh, there wasn't, when, if, you, if you studied art, you would be a painter or sculptor or, or something else. You would not be a photographer. So photography was not imagined as being an art form at that point. Obviously, he's informed, uh, they're aesthetic, they're beautiful, but they were primarily serving other purposes. He was basically a gun for hire, right? He was hired to photograph different things. And while he was there doing his job, he happened to do it better than other people who, who did the same job. And, and in a, by the end of the 19th century, we get the beginnings of really an art, uh, art movement in photography. But I, I think that's important to mention. And one other thing just to add for the, those not catching it, the reproductions, the photographs he took, the original large uh, mammoth plates, 
were not reproducible. They're not like a modern negative. It's a it's a it's a giant glass plate negative, and you put it down on the on the paper to make the print. So it's a contact print. So it's not as easy to reproduce. So postcards was a different technique, which could be done in multiples. So it's just important to remember that that, that there are different kinds of photographs, even though they look very similar. Um, Nyan, your next book is going to be about South Asian immigrants. Um, that's a group that I think that I know the least about. I imagine some in the audience feel the same. Uh, how, how has that group changed the picture of California in, in the period you're studying? Right. It, it, I mean, to understand how they changed the picture of California, it has to be to appreciate that the South Asian immigrants I'm thinking about or interested in are not the same ones that immigrated with my parents um, and you know may have transformed many ways in which we think about South Asian immigrants as professionals or owners of shops or motels and stuff like that. These were um, Punjabi men, mostly, some Bengali, um, some college students who um, came across from Hong Kong where they were sometimes following the British Army. And they came for work in Vancouver and later through California, down to California and all the way over to Texas, and they ended up working in rural areas. And their history is actually submerged because many of them who survived or thrived in their various localities, the Imperial County or uh, Marysville and Yuba City, did so because they intermarried with Mexican women. And so they, over several generations, they become, in our world, Hispanic, or their children become Hispanic. But those, when still, when people are asked about their their parent, their grandparents, um, they talk about this. Well, I had this Indian grandfather, and it wasn't quite the Native American. But what's what's so amazing to me is that I, as I've been doing this research in the 19 teens and 20s, I've mostly been looking at legal records because these were many of these people were not literate. Um, they didn't leave diaries, or they didn't leave um, photographs themselves. Um, I find through the disputes they have, as well as the contracts and relationships they have with a variety of other people, who they are, and how they're trying to connect with people across divides of language and culture. And it's not just the marriages with Mexican women, it's also partnerships with uh, Japanese workers and Armenians, um, rivalries with some groups and, and others. And so the interracial relationships um, made me rethink how I think about when I've driven through the Central Valley, which is, oh my gosh, can I get myself to a big city? That's where cosmopolitan life is. Well, I realized in California, in the early 20th century and the late 19th century, cosmopolitan life was in the rural areas. The mixture of people, the, the kind of socializing that was going on, the, um, you know, both the tensions and the pleasures of contact at a time when um, labor unions were uh, developing this idea of exclusive white labor unions and to dis, um, disavow connections with black and Mexican, Chinese and uh, Punjabi workers, even if they, if, even though people on the ground were socializing with them. Um, the alien land law, which made it impossible for um, Japanese and, and South Asians and um, Chinese to own the land they were actually cultivating. So very elaborate sharecropping arrangements occurred. Um, and you know the alien law, land law was the export from California. 
came about in 1913, made a constitutional amendment in 1920, and Florida still has an alien land law in the books that, in fact, in the last election, uh, people decided, you know what? I think that we should have an alien land law. We should not allow people who are we think of as aliens to own land. Um, interestingly, this was particularly about people who were deemed racially ineligible for naturalized citizenship. So I think there's a way in which we need to think about the whole ensemble of laws and rules and cultural practices that made California in the early 20th century a version of of trying to imagine itself as what we think of as an apartheid society, mm -hmm. uh, where people had separate places that they, where children went to school from other groups or separate bathrooms and water fountains. We don't see as much of the imagery of that as we do with the American South, but it was there. And particularly in locations where there was an intensity of migrants from a particular region. Um, so the example of Armenians is really striking. At the same token, those same Punjabis talked about how the Imperial Valley reminded them of the Punjab and how these rivers that went through it, which were mostly canals, uh, you know, they imagined in terms of the rivers of their childhood or you know, the landscape of their childhood. So people are remaking that landscape in a variety of different ways. So I think what, one of the things we lose when, when people are erased out or the labor is erased out is we lose that imagination and the richness of that life. Um, Matt, I th you've written a lot about uh the citrus industry and the uh, grape industry here. Um, I can't really see the audience, or I'd ask for a show of hands of how many people grew up in Southern California. I think our iconic agricultural landscape for many people is citrus, and we all have images of those citrus groves that have rapidly disappeared. Um, you've really looked at how labor uh, changed the face of that particular landscape. Could you talk to us just a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I come from... Um Pomona Valley, and uh, most people uh, forget that, in fact, all of Los Angeles before World War II was based on an agricultural economy, and Pomona Valley uh, was one of the hearts of it. In fact, uh, Sunkist was started in Claremont. Um, it uh, grew in, in uh, Riverside, and um, it uh, essentially frames um, the kind of wealth and the kind of affluence that exists uh, before World War II. All of that came about largely through uh, immigrant labor. Um, I'm not saying that there wasn't any European uh, influences and, and contributions, but um, it was heavily dependent on Mexican immigrants who were um, wrongfully uh, identified as birds of, of flight uh, that would fly in and do the labor and then go back to Mexico. In fact, um, citrus growers were very inv invested in having a year-round uh, um, labor force that was largely Mexican. In addition, um, there were a lot of Sikh workers uh, in Claremont in particular, and if you actually look at the uh, rock formations, um, of some of the canals and some of the, the uh, houses that still exist throughout the Pomona Valley. Those rocks come from out of e the uh, San Antonio Canyon. Um, and uh, they were literally uh, pulled out of there uh, on the backs of Sikh men who would strap a uh, cloth around their, their forehead, um, carry those rocks on their back, and carry them down from the areas around Mount Baldy and Mount, Mount San Antonio. 
And they, those rocks actually form the uh, bedrock or the foundation of the canals that fed uh, the citrus groves in Southern California um, in that area. Um, finally, um, in terms of digging out those big boulders, right, because um, some of them, mo many of them were embedded in uh, uh, soil. Uh, there was a man named Jigahara. I never got his first name, but he was talked about extensively in Upland, Ontario, and Claremont. Jigahara was a, a, a Japanese inventor who invented the Jigahara digger. And essentially, this digger was a mechanical uh, contraption that was used to dig out those big boulders so that the Sikh men could get at the, the, the rocks. So a lot of what we uh, depended on um, as a society before World War II, um, the citrus industry, was created by uh, the ingenuity and the hard labor of uh, non-white immigrant workers. Yeah. I, you, that reminded me in his uh, in his book Epitaph for a Peach, the farmer poet Nessius Davis Mas Masamoto writes, "Throughout my farm's history, wave after wave of laborers have journeyed here. I sometimes picture, and he uses the word picture, my farm as a battlefield with troops of people struggling with nature in a hundred-year war: Germans, Italians, Chinese, Japanese, Ar Armenians, Filipinos, and Mexicans. Their voices have sounded over this farm. Their families have worked, walked these rows, and." He writes very uh, beautifully about some of these tensions of, of enjoying the land, loving the land, and being oppressed by it in a certain sense. Ken, um, I didn't want to show your photos too early because I think they're you know strong and might obliterate other images from people's minds. But uh, if you'd like to discuss them now, I think it would be uh, very interesting. So, as I was saying, in terms of thinking about this panel, I was thinking about my topic, which is really looking at early immigration and uh, the history of lynching in California, which you may know from the, the notion of the vigilantes or vigilance committees. Um, if you've seen the exhibition, you've seen the photographs that Vance took, which are now uh, being attributed to Watkins in the exhibition. And so that was the area that I sort of looked at as far as uh, linking my contribution today. So I pulled a bunch of images. I wasn't sure quite how much time I had or what I would have. So I'm going to go through them kind of quickly. But I just wanted to make the main point that, um, that I talk at length in my book, um, that the idea of the Vigilance Committee, which is what Vance photographs, is this idea we have of a, of a community existing before the law trying to, take, trying to create some uh, lawfulness in their town. San Francisco was the first one, of course. And that's the one that Vance photographs. But uh, in looking at it, I also realized I didn't know when the first legal execution was possible. Was there an option for that uh, committee or not? And it turns out there was. There, was, there were legal options. And um, even if we want to argue that in 1856, 1851 to 56, that it was too small of a state and would be too hard to, do, to allow everybody to have a legal trial, the practice continues until 1930s. So by 1930, the state of California should be able to do a proper execution. And it turns out that they do. But when you look at the data comparing the two, it, it uh, turns out that uh, basically the largest group would be persons of color, Mexicans, Chinese, Native Americans. And so here are just some er early examples of illustrations. This is the kind of image that most of us have in our head of sort of a daylight, wild west, uh, white on white, racially neutral activity. Um, I'll just go through these quickly. This is Jenkins, which was the first vigilance committee. is uh, Australian that uh, robbed a, a bank and was 
lunch during the day. So at least these people are very conscious. They say we're taking the law into our own hands. And, um, and there's a, a fair amount of, of documentation of their process. That one did. Here's, uh, this is not the one in the exhibition, but it's of the same March. And I, didn't, I don't know if it's attributed to, would now be attributed to Watkins, but I suspect that it, it might be. If you look at the edges, you can see these dark shapes tell you that this is a black and white photograph taken from a daguerreotype. And, um, and you can ask me questions later if you want to know more about the photographic process. But this is a photograph taken of vigilantes, so people that are decided. There is a, a legal process. There is a, a sheriff. There is a, uh, a prison of some kind. And they've decided, no, we're not going to go that route. We're going we're gonna, to uh, take care of this ourselves and arm themselves, take over parts of the city. And this becomes the, the model that most Americans um, have uh, fetishized in terms of thinking about the Wild West, that this is this, the way that it happened. And so I'm not picking on the, the, this particular vigilance committee, but I'm saying that what happens after that, so 1856 onward, everybody begins to evoke that committee, and then they use that, that historical precedent to justify some quite horrible crimes, that we, uh, crimes of the mob, that we would not, uh, that, that there's no reason to have in a civilized society. Here's an unidentified one. I believe it is, though, a, a Mexican immigrant. And here's one in, in Los Angeles, just to give you a little local one. And most of the counties that um, Watkins went in, there, there are quite a few in the gold rush um, areas. When you go through and look at those mining images, most of those, someone in that, that typical mining shop, probably one of them was in one of these, you know, knew about the lynchings if they didn't participate. Uh, here's one in Los Angeles. It was five men lynched um, uh, all on the same day, 1863, right in downtown Los Angeles. I have a, a walking map on my website if anybody wanted to go on a walking tour of lynch sites in downtown Los Angeles. It has more than any other city in the United States, a history that most people don't know about. And again, that's where I, I, I uh, suggest this idea of, of uh, erasure. And the, the youngest boy, Yabara, was um, lynched for stealing a chicken. You know, so that's not a capital offense anywhere. And here are, there are uh, only three or four photographs of actual lynchings. I'll go through them quickly, because I know it's, it's hard to look at. But you can see that they are clearly mestizo, Mexican-American. And 1877 is one of the earliest photographs of a lynching um, in the United States. If you think about southern lynching, there are no very few photographs dating back that early. And I have a longer theory about that, which I won't go into. Um, here, we know this sort of frontier image of the Wild West. This is the only historical marker in the state of California uh, acknowledging this history. So, um, and that hangs outside the bar. Um, here, though, it changes sort of around the 1860s. Instead of being daytime, full light, uh, in, the, in broad daylight, it changes to a nighttime activity, where people now are wearing masks, and they're doing this undercover. At that point, I think it's fair to say that this is, be, becomes full-on lynching, right? Where you're really hiding yourself, you're hiding your face. And uh, this is from the Chinese massacre here in Los Angeles, 1872. 19 Chinese lynched in one day. They, um, well, that's a, a longer story to tell. But um, basically, <clears throat> it would take too long to tell it. Um, but they, they pulled the building apart. They're hiding out in a building. And they pull the adobe apart, brick by brick, with their hands, and pull the, these uh, Chinese people out by their scruff of their neck, some of them being as old as 80 and some as young as 14, um, <clears throat> just because they were in that building. Downtown Los Angeles also, again, this was a, a, probably a French um, immigrant. 
and that's the hill near the cathedral, right near the cathedral downtown. You can see there's a man that looks very tall. He's not. And here's an early drawing from a, um, an 1851 uh, travel log from a German um, gold rush miner who actually uh, had been a sailor and tied the knots in several lynchings and describes it in his journal. And I, I don't know if you can read the bottom there, but it says, execution of Josh the nigger uh, at the bottom. So if, as far as the racial impact, I think it's pretty reasonable to say. I'm not going to read that to you. Um, uh, I'll just maybe one little line. Life was only crushed out of him by the hauling of the writhing body up and down several times, just to show that it was not a good process. And of course, the only woman to be lynched in California, a Mexican woman. Um, and there's statistics, I can go over those later. I need to um, wrap up a little bit, I, I know. Um, so as far as I'm, I'm a practicing photographer as well, and so this particular, this is the same tree 80 years later. So I, I've gone back and looked for a lot of these sites. And the reason I, I wanted to mention this in, the, in relation to Watkins is because I, basically I'm doing landscape photography, but in a, a, with a, a very different sort of context. So um, some of them are actual sites, and some of them are as close as the historical record would allow me to get. And I, I also used a very large format camera, not as big as Watkins, um, because they don't make those anymore. But a large one, 8x10, which is the kind that um, Edward Weston used and other photographers. And the idea of, behind that was to really try to take the form that has often been seen as, uh, as a, somehow erasing social histories when we look at Watkins and other historical works, and try to use the same form, create an aesthetic work that will at the same time remind people of these histories. And I do that by often through the title. So I'll just show a couple, and then go, you can go ahead and start yeah, but I'm, we're already out of time, or wrap, so we need to start wrapping it up, and then there'll be questions, and you can ask any questions you want of the panelists. Um, uh, Matt and Nyan, do you have any comments on, on Ken's photos? Want to tie it together? Yeah, I do. Um, actually, it was, uh, I just couldn't reach the clicker. I had some uh, photos of, uh, of trees, and then <laughs> we're off of that. Um, but I think trees are very important to uh, Watkins. Um, and we can show them during the question yeah, and answer period. Yeah, we can period. do that. But, um, you know, he, he um, exhibits or takes photos of um, indigenous trees, like the California buckeye, right. mm -hmm. um, which is a very important tree in terms of um, helping Native Americans migrate through California. They were able to take the, the buckeye um, nut from the tree, crush it up. It was used as a way of... Um, uh, remedying uh, snake bites, but also used as uh, food. And most European immigrants didn't know what to do with it. It was actually it's actually poisonous. So there's ways of looking at these trees and seeing multiple stories. Yeah. I think what's interesting. I mean, in one case, you look at it and you say, I, I, it's reminiscent of those lynchings that you're talking about. Yeah. On the other hand, we can also see in it um, Native American persistence, alternative ways of using um, mm -hmm. nature, and so I think it speaks to the multiplicity of interpretations that photography provides us. That's right. I just, uh, most of the, the favorite tree of the lynch mob was the, uh, the California native oak, mm -hmm. because as you probably know if you've seen them, they're very twisting branches and often very low. So it's often identified very specifically. Um, they also are dying, as you might know, of sudden oak death in California. So part of the, for me, the, the idea of photographing them was they may not be there in another generation, um, and they were, standing, they live a very long time. So if they weren't the actual tree, they were certainly witnesses to a history that we, we no longer see. 
and that was part of it also. Nine? And maybe that's it. Um, the witnessing is the, the most strategic and, and compelling practice here that um, you know, is evoked from, from the images you've shown, which is that we can look at documentary images in a certain kind of way, but I think by connecting it to these photographs you've taken of the trees and about what you're articulating as the witnessing that both you're doing by going through your contextual process of learning about what happened, why it happened, how it was erased, and then to um, represent it anew, um, I think is probably the richest part of, um, and, and the most um, meaningful in terms of what, how we reckon with the lives and the violences that are part of our history here and what makes this history in California something um, so important to share fully and witness um, in ways that you know may have been lost to us if we only took one strategy to it. And, and I would just add, that I didn't keep on the, the screen very long because it's statistics, but it does follow. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's if I think of it as sort of in the, in the range of possibilities, there are, there are ways in which maybe on one hand people are exploited in terms of labor or they might have greater access than others, and at the far other end are the people who are, um, <clears throat> you know, given the least amount of rights, uh, not the right to self-representation, not the right to a fair trial. And, and in looking at the statistics, it corresponds with immigration waves. So the, the Mexican um, victimization really sort of dies out in the 18, or ends, sorry, uh, in the 1870s as Chinese immigrants are, um, are no longer working on the railroad and are now in the cities and suddenly their numbers go up. So you can kind of track these other social movements in, in I guess, what is a very dark history, but it does echo the other, the other histories you, you guys are referencing in terms of labor. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I, I want to, it's obvious that, uh, as you've so eloquently uh, noted tonight, that this, the, the California landscape has been the scene of atrocities and bad behavior. Um, I wanted to end, if I could, as you know, a representative of the Sierra Club, with uh, sort of an apology for landscape and, and people and what it can do. So uh, Don Worster, uh, the historian, has a new biography out of John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, and I was reading it the other day as I was preparing for this lecture. And uh, he opens it interestingly with, a, with Muir hiking through Eaton Canyon, which is right here above uh, Pasadena. And he, Muir, in this opening uh, scene, meets a man he calls dark-skinned of unknown nationality, and they start yakking, as was Muir's habit. And it turns out the man had been born in Mexico of Spanish and Irish parents. And Worcester says, as they sat in the darkening canyon, Muir's host described his dream of creating a vineyard and harvesting honey here in, the fertile in this fertile, beautiful spot. Muir was touched by this man's dream and sensed in his fellow camper a shared passion for America's mountains, forests, tumbling streams, and fields of wildflowers filled with feeding bees. Um, Worcester concludes that the passion for nature can still draw people together across differences of ethnicity um, as Muir was drawn to his dark-skinned friend. And um, he's, uh, Worcester says, on any sunny weekend, they may find themselves walking together up a canyon, watching quail run across the path, sniffing the tang of sagebrush, and looking for stars above the urban haze. 
just last weekend I hiked up a ridge above Eaton Canyon and there was a crescent moon in the sky pointing to Venus and Jupiter and I saw the exact phenomenon that Worcester had been describing um, and that Muir had known so well. Hikers were walking by speaking Chinese, English, Spanish and European tongues I couldn't identify and I hope that out, as they looked out over a remarkably clear Los Angeles landscape they thought not only of history's horrors but also of the beauty of nature and of our species ability to do beautiful things as well. Um, we're now ready to take questions. You do have to use a microphone and there are folks among you who will give you the microphone. Um, we can show more pictures here as we ask, as the panelists answer questions and you just have to speak into the mic if you have questions. Hi, uh, my name is Ben. Um, I had a question relating to this theme of the, the erasure of particular uh, immigrant communities from the uh, official public image of California. I mean, you've talked about this issue in, in the past and how California remembers its history, but I wondered if you could take the theme and bring it up to the present day and say a little bit about how uh, California's um, official image has, has developed over time and whether more recent uh, waves of immigrants have been incorporated into that image or uh, persistently left out, and, and if so, why? Well, um, I think one way of beginning with that is that um, the incorporation, um, if you will, of large waves of migrants from all over the world seems to always be hyper-identified with the cities. And I um, think that that's something that I, I'm still wrestling with, how it is that certain cities and locations, uh, geographies, if you will, are thought to be identified with an ethnic group or a particular um, group of people when what I see more strikingly is a circulation around a particular space or through it. And I, what I mean here is that people talk about going to neighborhoods for something and then going somewhere else or being from somewhere else. And I think one of the things that is so striking to me is that when I think about uh, the different ways in which suburbanization um, has been and exurbanization um, is often represented as um, largely unmarked or white, um, it seems to belie the history of and the demographics in California in which large numbers of people from um, African-Americans to Mexican-Americans to Guatemalans to um, Brazilians to um, you know, Laotians and Cambodians are dispersed in all kinds of different geographies um, and see them um, and experience them differently than a kind of sense of here's that neighborhood in which you'll get really good food from X. Um, but maybe other people have other things to say. Well, yeah, I want to make reference to um two uh, collections of, of photography since Watkins, uh, moving forward through the 20th century into the 21st century. One is Dorothea Lang, for example, in the 30s and 40s, who um, took pictures not, of, not just of the Jode-like uh, migrants, um, the white migrants from Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas, the Dust Bowl migrants, but also took uh, photos of uh, Mexican Americans and uh, Mexican immigrants who suffered the same um, humility uh, um, and inhumane treatment um, during the Depression. And the reality is, you know, as I said in the very beginning, um, the ways in which audiences make meaning, well, 
we remember the migrant mother and we remember the Jode-like figures as um, the sine qua non of her work um, to the exclusion of the Mexican because people just didn't recognize that as equally important. Um, and so uh, it's unfortunate that that's the ways in which um, uh, her work is remembered and it wasn't her intention. She wanted to draw her attention to those Mexican um, migrants that were suffering. Uh, later on, and more recently, uh, Richard Stephen Street, um, who wrote a book called Beast of the Fields, um, but he has this great uh, photographic book called Photographing Farm, Work, Farm Workers in California. And he documents um, in photographs uh, farm work from uh, the beginning of California to uh, through the 21st century. And I think in those works, um, we're starting to see resonance with uh, the California uh, public. And I want to say it um, that I know this by the by the summer um, when I had a Huntington Fellowship, I went to uh, the Pasadena City uh, Playhouse in which they did a Steinbeck um, play of Mice and Men. It was set in the Bracero um, period. Uh, the Braceros were temporary guest workers um, during... Uh, from 1942 to 1964. And so Of Mice and Men, which is this uh, Steinbeck play, was actually cast with almost completely Mexican uh, performers. Alongside of that was a photographic exhibit um, featuring um, Richard Stephen Street's um, photographs and his collection. And I, I saw um, in that experience so many uh, people from different walks of life, from different backgrounds, really deeply affected by not only the experience of going to that uh, play, but also the images that um, were presented um, at the Pasadena City Playhouse. And so I think that there is a kind of recognition that's going on, um, and it's taken a very long time. Um, and that arc goes from Carlton Watkins through Dorothea Lang to Richard Stephen Street. I would just add, I started my project in part in response to that because there was all the uh, anti-immigration material going on at the time and I wanted to sort of raise awareness of this history in a way through my photographs and, and I, I found in exhibitions that people do respond to it because it is such a specific project. Um, so I think they exist in a space and often um, those issues come up around the, the exhibition but I don't haven't done anything more, more uh, directed than that. I suggest if you have a question, you put your hand up. There are people with microphones on either aisle. We, uh, just to comment on how photography has changed since the time of these photographs, we all have cameras now that are quite capable. And my question is, what should we photograph now to assure for the future that uh, erasures of the kind that you are accentuating do not occur. Should I? I would just say that I think the, the, I think the interesting thing here for all of us that take photographs, and we all do, and we all take more photographs than we ever did before, than any other generation, really, because we, we, you probably all have a camera in your bag somewhere, or in your pocket or something. You could take a picture you know, at any moment, and you, you probably have taken a picture today or yesterday or tomorrow. So one of the things, and I, I teach photography, one of the things I always try to stress to my students is that, that um, as we are very sophisticated when we read a novel, we read a newspaper, we watch a movie, we're very critical, we're able to bring all of our critical skills with us, we need to just start to try to bring those uh, with us when we're also uh, creating works or do looking at works. And I think um, 
you know, each person should tell the story they want to tell. And as we get more and more of those stories, we're going to have more and more voices. So I, I think it's an exciting time for photography in, in, in a lot of ways. And there's so many photographers now, it's challenging too. They have to be even better. Um, and lastly, I just say that the, the question between the aesthetic, this idea of what do you think you're doing with, what do you think a photograph does, is something that's very important to think about if you go back and look at the Watkins. Are they aesthetic interventions? Are they informational, right? Is it about a scientific data or is it about a personal subjective expression, which is the way we might think of art or art practice. So it's just helpful to, th and when you're taking a picture, you might do that as well. Is that supposed to be an artful birthday cake or is that just supposed to show so-and-so in front of the birthday cake because it's a documentation of that event, right? So it's all about the, the questions you're asking or you want people to, the questions you're answering. And let me add that uh, the digital age also includes audio and one of the things that's missing here is that we don't have the context and so um, recently National Public Radio um, promoted a National Day of Listening. I think that's a really good thing to do. You can actually, with the photos, um, do interviews, do oral histories um, that provide the kind of context that's missing from earlier photos. So also do digital recording as well. Question over here. Hi, uh, my name is Daniel, and um, I was, I'm really curious about this idea that you have of California as a state of erasure, because I think most people who study California history think of it as a place that people project onto California what they want it to be, and you touched on all of that. And I want to, if you could discuss a little bit of that relationship between projection and erasure. If, for instance, someone has to erase the landscape to create a canal that reminds them of a river, or if a Midwesterner coming in coming to California has to erase this painful past in order to create the bucolic suburban lifestyle that they wanted California to be at. What do you think that relationship is between California as a state that relies upon sort of a fantastic projection of something else and erasing what came before? That's a great question. Um, I, I think some of it has to do with thinking about dissemination and capital and I, I'll use those big words now um, in, in this way, in that what's important about Watkins and why we focus so much on him and why this institution is showing his work is that they, it, it both was stuff that was preserved by, in certain cases, and also disseminated widely. And the dissemination, so, so the photographs he took in Kern County which were for a lawsuit and afterwards uh, to promote the land that was being developed for them, got shown at the 1893 Columbia Expo Exposition and you know, got circulated as to promotion to come to California and create your world in California. Um, at the same time, um, you know, to think about the kinds of, I think what's important about the what we can even think about with photography now is not just the digital camera, but the means of dissemination of images. I mean, Google image, uh, the ways in which people put things on the web, um, how they, they create the reality but also communicate it in different ways to be reinterpreted. Um, I think all of that requires this incredible infrastructure that we are, we are asked to take for granted and not really see how it works. And I think what we've been trying to do here is trying to say a little bit more about how does that infrastructure work and how the process of erasure, remaking, projection is part of that process of 
both communication, which requires a great deal of money to make happen, as well as different uses to which that money and the work that's being done is put to. I'm reminded of uh, the great documentary film, Born into Brothels, where uh, these uh, children of the brothels in uh, Mumbai, I think it is, um, actually are, are given uh, photograph are given cameras to take photos of what they experience. But it's so rare that um, people in uh, working class or even sub-proletariat uh, positions can actually have the capacity to document their lives in that way. And I think it underscores the kind of importance of capital and the real differences in terms of um, how uh, people have access to, to um, technology. Um, it's, it's very important to not only uh, decide what we're going to take, but who gets the equipment and how do we get it to them. And that film, in my mind, is, is just a wonderful example of public humanities, of it really expanding it and answering that question in a very socially responsible way. I think, I think Gregory is outside with a whole spread of food waiting for everyone. So why don't we bring this discussion outside, uh, and that way we can... I'll go home before the Getty needs to kick us out anyway. But I want to thank the panel once again. <laughs>